the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. I know during the campaign cycle here, we've heard a lot made about making America great again. But my first guest, I think, would argue that what really challenges us is not simply a notion of making America great again, and I'm not sure what that means nor what that process is, but I can tell you this. If we take into consideration the observations of de Tocqueville back a century plus ago into America and her greatness at that time, let me suggest that perhaps the greater issue at foot here, the bigger challenge that is faced by this nation today is not an effort toward making America great again, but rather making America righteous again. If we can make America righteous again, then the making of America great again will naturally flow. Our first guest is the editor of First Things, an ecumenical Christian journal based out of New York City. He is a theologian, has a Ph.D. in religious ethics from Yale University, and the author of a brand new book just released by our friends at Regnery Publishing called Resurrecting the Idea of a Christian Society. Dr. R.R. Reno, great to have you on the program. It's good to be with you, Craig. What about this, this idea? I mean, that making America great again, I mean, it's, that's a noble idea, but that seems to kind of be the end game. It really doesn't give us any insight in terms of what is the game plan to take us there. Well, not just that, but great. I mean, great presumably is more than just richer, right? I mean, we have to have some noble ideal to which we're striving if, it, if the greatness is to be more than just more stuff, um, so we need to have some vision in mind of what it means to have to have a great society, and and I, in my book I try to make a case that we need to have some transcendent orientation as a people, and that in our history that transcendent orientation has been provided by Christianity, and so we need to renew or uh, I use the term resurrect the Christian character of our society if we're going to get out of the troubled state that we're in. And, of course, the irony is um, many of the great observers and thinkers out there that have pondered America and her quote-unquote greatness down through um, the last couple of centuries have, yes, pointed to uh, industrialization and our economic proudness, things of this sort. But they've also highlighted quite vigorously America's sense of compassion and integrity, our, our work ethic, hard work, responsibility, all of these ideas that are really the underpinnings of, I think, what is the ultimate um, product of this sense of greatness, and that is that 
from our sense of compassion and in hard work and integrity and responsibility and all these other deals and, and embracing of freedom and all that that means flows the end result or the benefit of economic greatness. But absent all of these other points that I just mentioned, I have to wonder if economic greatness is even possible anymore. <laughs> no, you're quite right. I mean, you mentioned Alexis de Tocqueville at the outset, and he was very worried about the way in which a democratic culture tends towards mediocrity, and not just mediocrity, but a kind of license and, um, you know, a lack of a lack of vigor. And maybe maybe we're kind of experiencing that today. But he recognized that in the United States, Christianity provided countervailing force. It tended to unify people who are otherwise, you know, um, divided in an individualistic society like ours. It tended to uh, organize people towards serve the common good. And as you said, it, it generates um, an imperative to lift up, to defend the weak and lift up the poor. And so that's an important part of any healthy society is that we see that we're all in it together and that, uh, but for the grace of God, go I. So that, that helps us recognize that, you know, our neighbor who maybe is not doing so well uh, needs a helping hand. Um, and, you know, too much we live in a society that's very now dominated by a kind of meritocracy. And there's good aspects of that. You know, it means that talented people can succeed in our society. But the downside is the tendency to think that achievement is the be-all and end-all of life. And it can make people look up, you know, and not down. Um, and and we, as Christians, you know, we, Jesus tells us, you know, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit the prisoner. So we're urged to toe down to the people who are below us, not just up to the people who can pull us higher. I wonder, you use the word unity. Is it as much striving toward making America unified or maybe a deeper, greater sense of solidarity? And I ask that question, Doctor, because we live in a pluralistic society. We've always had differing religious views, certainly differing political parties. There were times throughout American history when there was much that might have divided us in the sense of presenting challenges or roadblocks to unity, and yet we were able somehow to find a sense of solidarity. I think, for example, of World War II. Well, World War II was a battle that was won not by Republicans or Democrats or conservatives or liberals or Protestants or Catholics or Jews. It was a war that was won by Americans because we found a common enemy that gave us a sense of solidarity. Right. Well, hopefully we can find that we don't need an enemy. I mean, certainly in times of trial, you know, we find our common ground. But, you know, in some ways, we're, aren't we kind of in a time of trial in our country right now? You know, the economic changes of our society over the last generations have put a tremendous amount of stress on the social contract. Um, we see kind of an upsurge in racial tensions in spite of all the progress of the last two generations. And so there's a, you know, I think that the, this current electoral cycle and the amount of anti-establishment votes, whether it's for Sanders or Trump, does suggest our society is unhappy and that uh, we need to, um, we need to join together in order to solve our problems as a country. 
And and so you're, I think you're right. I mean, in the book, one of the things that I talk about is the false god of diversity. And I mean, it makes some sense at one level. You can't you can't be united with people that you're not present to. And so it makes some sense to think about. Well, wait a minute. Am I really present to my fellow citizens? You know, to people from different backgrounds. But ultimately, diversity is a means to an end, which is solidarity or unity. And we've lost sight of that. We we make diversity an end in itself, as if having a you know a menu of different folks somehow makes a society one. It doesn't. Uh, we have to be shoulder to shoulder, striving towards a common end in order to be a be a united society. Have we of recent generations then, Doctor, in your opinion, maybe um, built an idol, made ideology of multiculturalism in a sense then that leaves us with no shared common culture? I mean, I'm thinking that if we have no common ground upon which we can build together because we spend more time elevating or celebrating the difference as opposed to the things that we have in common, that trying to find that common ground upon which then we can move forward as a people, as a nation, becomes very troubling and difficult, doesn't it? I think that's quite right. And, you know, I've become kind of bitter over the last few years about multiculturalism. You know, I travel around and you chat to people, ordinary Americans, from many different backgrounds. You know, most of them are very proud to be American, and and they feel a sense of common purpose, you know, there's there are plenty of people who died in Iraq from all kinds of different backgrounds. And and I resent the fact that our leadership class feeds young kids in high school this sort of multicultural ideology that denies them a vocabulary to talk about their shared love of our country. Uh, and I, I think that the leadership class I'm a little bit, I'm getting more and more cynical. I think that the leadership class does that in part, maybe unwittingly, because uh, if you deny, if you deny ordinary people a kind of shared focal point of unity, then they'll never challenge you in your position of leadership, right? You atomize people, you deracinate them, you disorient them, you, you, you sow grievance, and this, this will, this will prevent people from, from ordinary people from unifying to, you know, take charge of their own country. And I think you see a lot of protests. We've, we're in the midst of a protest against that whole process, aren't we? Absolutely so. And of course, it's the old adage, you know, divide and conquer. And we know certainly from a, from a spiritual standpoint, the enemy of our souls seeks to do just that. And if uh, Satan can be about the business of dividing us, it is very easy then to find that a house that is divided against itself, what does Scripture tell us? Well, that house will fall. If you've just joined us, our visit today with Dr. R.R. Reno. The book is called Resurrecting the Idea of a Christian Society. We'll get to the meaning of that title in a moment. also want to spend a bit of time looking at observations made by a number of theologians, one of my favorites, Dr. Uh, the late Dr. Francis Schaeffer, who give warnings about the end result of what it means to live in a uh, postmodern or more specifically put post-Christian society. Is that where we find ourselves today? And how can we return back to our Christian roots? We'll get back to more of our conversation with Dr. R. R. Reno as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
Welcome back to The Conversation, 20 minutes after the hour of 5 o'clock here on the Tuesday edition of Lifeline. We're visiting today with best-selling author Dr. R.R. Reno. He is the author of a new book called Resurrecting the Idea of a Christian Society. And Dr. Reno, I'm wondering, as we look at this uh, disarray in which we find our society in, it's more than just a sense of racial disunity. There's political disunity taking place. I think a growing sense of, of lack of satisfaction, probably a large part of that is because we've distorted the definition of the American dream, and we'll talk about that in a bit too. But I'm wondering how much of this is simply reaping what Francis Schaeffer warned we were sowing, and that is that we find ourselves distinctly in the middle of postmodern or a post-Christian society. Oh, I think he was far-seeing in this regard. Um, he, he recognized that that you know postmodernism you know is a is a project that that um, I mean I think largely is, should be defined as an attempt an attempt to live in a meaningless universe by giving your own life meaning through some sort of act of will that I can choose the meaning for my life but you know it's funny. People are smart enough to know that they don't have the power to give their life meaning. <laughs> you know, uh, if if I'm a god to myself, then you know, if you really get your mind around it, you go, nah, nah, that's not going to work. And so, I think that's one reason you see you see some of the dissatisfaction out there is that our current cultural regime doesn't really give people much to believe. Uh, we. We offer people what I think are the sort of small gods of health, wealth, and pleasure. And that's what our society revolves around um, these days. Those are the, those are the gods that our, our culture now offers to young people, and not just young people, but more broadly. Well, and that goes to the heart, perhaps to my observation, too, that there is a tremendous sense of, I think, distorting of what had been the historical definition of the American dream, where for the longest time, certainly I think in the viewpoint of our founding fathers, it was about realizing freedom. And that freedom, of course, defined in many ways, freedom of association, certainly freedom of press, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, critically important uh, in the founding days of this nation. And today, the American dream seems to be singularly defined as getting rich. Right. No, I think that that's a real distortion. You know, the, the, the motto for the state of New Hampshire is live free or die. It's not, you know, get rich. <laughs> and I mean, I'm all. I mean, more is better than less. Uh, you know, I'm. I'm uh, I admire the people who are successful in business, and I certainly think immigrants have every reason to want to have a better life um, than their parents who came before them. So, so uh, in no sense. But, but I. The American dream is that my our destiny is not controlled by somebody else by impersonal powers and I'm not I'm not destined you know to be to be um, to be poor I'm not destined to to be subordinated to people who are above me um, that that that's the sense of freedom and and so we have to probe we have to probe well what is the source of freedom in in our society what what gave those men the courage to stand up to their colonial masters. What gave you know, Martin Luther King Jr. the 
courage to stand up to Jim Crow. Um, you know, it's not, it's not, I mean, obviously there was no constitution when, <laughs> when, the, when the revolutionary generation uh, took up arms. So it can't be the case that our freedom comes from government. Our freedom comes from the courage we have to stand up against those who claim to control our lives. Well, and, and does not the Declaration the itself tell us that, that we... courage, you know, what's the source of that courage? And I think the source of that courage is a deeper loyalty. Um, and we say, no, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to let somebody dictate to my family. I'm not going to let somebody dictate to my community, or I'm not going to let somebody dictate to my church. And those deeper loyalties galvanize us, stiffen our spines. And that's the real source of freedom. And I, so in a, in, a, in a way, freedom comes from conviction. That's really what St. Paul meant when he said that for freedom Christ had made it, has set us free. Christ has set us free from the worldly powers uh, in and through our, our obedience to him, our faithfulness, our loyalty to him. Well, and certainly from a spiritual standpoint, we understand that our freedom, our spiritual freedom, comes from a source outside of us. It's not in anything of, our, of ourselves, but rather mm-hmm. what has been granted to us or provided to us by very God himself. And, I, and I'm reminded of that one passage in the Declaration of Independence where, and, and, and I think that the wording here is critically important, we hold these truths to be self-evident. It's not that we have determined that these truths or we have assigned value to these truths, but in saying that we hold them, doesn't that give acknowledgement that the source of those truths comes from outside of us? I I, I think that's absolutely right. And so in the aftermath of the Supreme Court's decision to to find a right to same-sex marriage, um, I think it was Judge Moore in Alabama resisted and I remember watching a TV show, and a TV commentator said, well, Judge Moore, uh, you know, how can you think that our rights come from God? And he looked at this commentator and said, well, I mean, do you think that they come from men? And he said, well, yes, of course. (laughs) If they come from men, they can be taken away by men. Um, So, yes, I, I, I do think it shows you how far gone we are in our society that we imagine that our freedoms are that they're that they are consequences of the political process, but no, 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 no. The, our freedoms protect us from the political process, protect us from the tyranny of the majority. Well, and not only that, but I think, Doctor, also protect us from ourselves in the sense that historically we have understood that uh, freedom comes with a price, and that with freedom there are codes of conduct. There are boundaries, so to speak. There's accountability. There's responsibility. Uh, We've certainly historically exercised that sense of freedom within the confines of established boundaries. That's how we're able to get along within a civilized society. And it's when we redefine freedom to suggest it means no holds barred, do whatever you want, whatever feels good at whatever time without regard to to, uh, any sense of responsibility toward others or for self or a sense of accountability. That's when freedom really goes off the rails, doesn't it? Yeah, I think that as I I think about this, I I think for the sort of postmodern culture, the post-Christian culture, freedom is the freedom to define the meaning of your own life. And you know what that effect has on most people? It disorients them. They wind up drifting through life. 
They wind up engaging in self-destructive behavior. Um, so the culture of freedom, we, 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 have, we talk freedom all the time now in our society, freedom to love whoever you want to love, et cetera, et cetera. But I look around me and I see, I see a lot of people in bondage to addiction, um, in bondage to dysfunction, criminality, um, even people who are, you know, get, you know, are able to break free from that are kind of afraid to go outside if they live in disadvantaged neighborhoods. So I, I see that this, this false cult of freedom, I call it a cult of freedom, uh, which is this misunderstood freedom as freedom to, to give meaning to your own life, that this that this cult of freedom has actually sown a great deal of bondage. Well, isn't there also a slippery slope there, Doctor, in the sense that if we if we exercise this boundless, I'll call it, or limitless freedom to define our mm. own life, it's not that far of a step to suddenly then defining our own truth, and suddenly we, we find ourselves bogged down in the morass of, of nihilism, aren't we? Yeah, I think, you know, nobody's, very few people are nihilists in any explicit sense, but... But there is, I mean, I, I think we, we look at our political situation, there's a lot of unhappiness out there. And uh, we think about the economic causes, I think they're, you know, they should be brought into consideration, and, and there are other factors. But I would not underestimate the corrosive effect of this functional nihilism. Uh, you know, people, we are born to serve others. We're born to serve a higher, higher power. We're born to serve, to, to worship God. And when we're denied opportunity for some higher, um, for some higher purpose in our life, uh, and we're, when we're condemned to a, a, an existence where we have to give our own life purpose, I can't see how that's not going to breed a lot of dissatisfaction in any society. And certainly that takes us down an additional dangerous path of moral relativism, situational ethics, you know, all of a sudden we find ourselves where there's no longer distinctives, there's no black or white, it's all just gray, and it's all up to your own private personal interpretation. So for one, murder is okay, for the other, it's not, and here we find ourselves. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation, a look at resurrecting the idea of a Christian society. How do we go about that process? We'll dive into that aspect of the conversation as our visit today with Dr. R.R. Reno continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. There is a song that was written back in the 1940s. i trying to remember who the uh, composer was. Uh, that, that essentially talks about everything suddenly has been switched, meaning night is day and day is night and, and good is bad and bad is good. And that seems to be where we find ourselves today. Ironically enough, traditionally from the historic Judeo-Christian perspective from the Bible and the Torah, uh, we defined sin. We knew what sin was. Well, yesterday's old sin is now today's new norm. We have completely, to many levels, abandon the sense of a law of nature or certainly of nature's God, find ourselves embracing this entitlement to modern welfare state, and this is the trouble that we have now found ourselves in. The big question, of course, remains in a postmodern or post-Christian environment in which we live, how do we address what I'll simply call spiritual impoverishment and come back to the sense of not only acknowledging the authority 
that of truth, but that truth even exists. This is part of the fascinating um, study inside the pages of this new book called Resurrecting the Idea of a Christian Society. Its author is with us today, Dr. R. R. Reno. And, Doctor, what about that? I mean, to begin with, there's this argument we used to have to, uh, from a Christian perspective, uh, share our faith in Jesus Christ. And now we find ourselves arguing whether or not God even exists. So how do we go about not only getting people around to acknowledging the authority of truth, but who that truth is, what the source of that truth is? I mean, certainly the first thing is to, we got to be very sure we don't internalize a kind of attitude of self-censorship. You know, political correctness is a very powerful force that's, you know, running through our society. And there's always that danger of internalizing it and just kind of withdrawing or withholding. Uh, and so we, you know, you got to speak the truth in love. You know, you have to, you have to be winsome, charitable, and always recognizing the speck in your own eye, and the beam in your own eye when we talk about the speck in another's eye. So, so, but, but still, we got to make sure. You know, it's the, the, uh, uh, in the Muslim world, you know, the the non-Muslims are called dimmies, and scholars have talked about an attitude of dimitude, which is to internalize second-class citizenship. Uh, and I and I worry that that Christians in America today are going to internalize that kind of well, you know, second-class. I, I shouldn't I shouldn't talk about that to my coworkers or people in the neighborhood and so on. Because um, in my experience, you know, there's a lot of dissatisfaction, and we've talked in this hour about how much dissatisfaction there is in our country. And, and you know, I, I've, I, I've taken, one of the things you're not supposed to talk about politics, you know. You know? Right. And ever since the rise of Trump, you know, I, I have, you know, because I'm, I'm a journalist and, a, you know, try to think about, what's going on in our society. So I started asking people, you know, ordinary people, people, you know, guys who pull the espresso shots. And, you know, uh, here in New York, we only ride around taxis, taxi drivers, and and all that sort of thing. And I asked people about their political views. Are you going to vote for Trump? Who are you voting for? And um, people are tentative at first. You know, a lot at stake. These are, you know, this is about the future of our country. and But they really appreciate the opportunity to have a conversation about something that matters. Uh, how much more you ask people about uh, questions of faith? What do you, what do you believe in? And, you know, do you think there's life after death? And you know, do you believe in uh, that there, that God exists? And you'd be surprised the conversations you have with people and how appreciated how appreciative they are. We all suffer in this regime of political correctness. Uh, a lot of people suffer. A lot more than we realize. It's not just us, religious believers who suffer, but folks who are, you know, folks who are maybe not not so sure where they stand, but they want to be able to talk and think, and they don't like being policed all the time. So I, I think that's the first step. 
Getting the conversation started, then critically important, acknowledging the fact that there's no such thing as a values vacuum, and we've, we've often thought, well, if we can only be, be neutral about such matters so that we don't run the risk of offending somebody else, um, we, we don't want to take our belief system you know, any further than the tip of our nose, and yet this notion that somehow we can live together in peace and harmony in a values vacuum, which seems to be the direction in which we've headed, is, is completely false, is not well, what we we're, what we're seeing is that the supposed neutral secularism is in fact an ideology that compels us all to conform. Um, you know, uh, every society has norms, social censure, uh, but I, I just feel like when I was growing up longer ago than I would like to admit. Uh, there, there was more room to move. Um, there was more elbow room. And now in a society that's supposed to be, you know, diverse and open, there just seems to be a lot more penetrating, you know, uh, control over even people's thoughts. Um, and I, I think that's natural, right? I mean, as a religious person, I recognize that all, the ultimate destiny of my life is beyond the political. But if you don't believe in something transcendent, you can make a god of the political. And that's what's happening in our secular society. We make a god of the political, which means that we ultimately are establishing a religion. It's called secular progressivism. Uh, Whereas a Christian society recognizes that ultimate truths, ultimate, the ultimate destiny of every human person is above the affairs of men. And that lets us approach political life and our, our neighbors with a lot more generosity, a lot more tolerance, or capacity for compromise. Um, and, and that's very much needed in our time, a sense that, look, the political is not the ultimate. The ultimate is... is uh, is the transcendent. Well, not only, I think, Doctor, the capacity for compromise, but the capacity for compassion for one another. And, of course, that compassion and, and the understanding of the challenges or the plights of another has to come because there's some sort of moral order. Unfortunately, we find ourselves in moral disorder that has so completely flipped all the rules on their head that suddenly now we see crime, for example, is is not a moral issue. It's suddenly simply a, an economic issue, that poverty is a a economic issue, not a moral issue, or, uh, you know, we've, we've got everything absolutely backwards, and sadly, the end game, the end result is where we find ourselves today. We are in the, the clutches now of a postmodern society that uh, that sadly is redefining everything, and in some cases saying, well, there are no defini- definitions, and so it's it's sort of up to uh, the, the the eye of the beholder, so to speak. And uh, as a result, it compla- com- creates this this environment of just complete utter chaos, not only at the economic level but at the political level and every other. The book is a fascinating read, and I think one that ought to be embraced by every Christian, every person who holds dear the sense of having a ultimate authority of truth that believes that moral relativism uh, or situational ethics is, is highly disruptive to our society. We find ourselves in 
utter moral disorder because there are no mores. There's no foundation from which uh, we we carry and comport ourselves. We've eliminated all the sense of of boundaries. Freedom just means doing whatever you want without any lack of accountability or responsibility whatsoever. And we've redefined the American dream to mean getting rich as opposed to the way our forefathers defined it. The book, I think, again, a critical read, particularly during this this time that we're all, I think, taking a moment to reconsider where we stand, where we think, who we are as a people. The book, again, called Resurrecting the Idea of a Christian Society. It is written by Dr. R.R. R. Reno. You'll find it available bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also order it online through Amazon.com. You can get it through uh, Dr. Reno's website at firstthings.com. That's firstthings.com. And the book, of course, is published by Regnery Press, a media partner of the same fine folks who own this radio station. Our thanks to Dr. R.R. R. Reno for uh, an insightful and thoughtful conversation. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. There are lots of books written about faith, to be sure, and lots of books about sports. But a book that combines both faith and sports, in this case, God and golf, well, probably not so many. And yet we're going to meet a guy who wrote just one. Joining me today in studio is the senior pastor from Faith Fellowship in San Leandro, Pastor Gary Mortera. Pastor Gary, good to see you. Craig, good to see you, friend. So golf and God, huh? That's yeah. kind of an interesting title, but in many ways kind of describes your life's journey, doesn't it? Yep. I was uh, chasing the golf tour when the Lord called me and saved me and wanted me to go in the ministry, and I kicked against that like Jonah. I didn't want to do it. I wanted to play golf, but the Lord, uh, he won. You can only fight him so long. And I'm glad he did. I'm glad he did. Uh, but I still compete at a high level at times. And uh, I wanted to evangelize some of the guys that I play with and actually wrote it as a booklet to give out as a testimonial, put the gospel of Jesus in there. And so it's my life story in golf, short version, uh, but the gospels weaved all through the book. You are a Bay Area kid, born and raised, I think, in Oakland. Yep, 35 years and the the trajectory in your life took a turn, as you suggest. Uh, you were looking at, desirous of, a life in the pro-golfing world. Mm -hmm. And yet, as a young man, raised in the church, I should say. Yep. Uh, but God wasn't always a major component in your life in terms of of where you were headed, at least not, not early on as a young man, was he? At age 16, uh, I said to my parents, I'm not going to church anymore because you want me to go. They were very godly, raised us in church uh, multiple times. Um, and about 18, I really took a left turn into the world and you know tried most of the flavors that are out there. Uh, so from 18 to 22, I just was living a young man's life. And, uh, but God just continued pressing in through different avenues and different people. And so one night when I was 22 years old, uh, I was watching the Raiders play the Seattle Seahawks on Monday night with my buddies, uh, getting loaded and uh, just doing the thing. And all of a sudden, a sense came over me, I, I got to get out of here. And I said to my friends, I got to go. And they said, go? Go where? Where are you going? The Raiders are on. I said, I got to go to church, man. And they said, it's Monday night. I said, I got to go. And uh, something was just compelling me to leave. And so I got in my car and drove to a little church in North Oakland. And I uh, sat in the back row. A young black preacher was preaching on the love of God. And I knew it was time for me to surrender my life. And so when he had the altar call, I went forward and accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I said, Lord, if you could die for me, then I could live for you. And it changed my life. 
So those seeds that have been planted in your life early on yeah. clearly had an impact. And a praying mom. My mom would, every time I would come home late at night, she'd be on her knees praying. And I said, Mom, why are you always praying? And she said, I'm praying for you and your brother that you'll surrender your life to the Lord. And it used to hound me. That, that early sense of rebellion, was that more toward conformity, uh, parents? I mean, we all go through those stages, but sometimes that rebellion early on can be rebellion toward God because we have a sense that there's a calling. We have a sense that he wants something of us, and every bit of our flesh is fighting against that. What was yeah. it for you? Well, you know, you think about the nation of Israel, right? God gives them their, his holy laws. And yet all the nations around them were so free to do whatever they wanted to do. And so that's why God said, don't hang out with them. Don't intermarry with them because you'll be tempted to go their way because the world system seems more attractive and more fun. Um, And living for the Lord is is a narrow path, as Jesus said. And so going to public schools, you know, hearing what's going on, watching what's going on, all the women that are out there, all the stuff. You know, it seemed more attractive than going to church and serving the Lord. And so I, as a young man, just opted for that for a while and realized after a few years, this is empty. This is this takes you nowhere. And so uh, that's when I started to respond to the Lord. And perhaps for a lot of us, that, that sense that there is a gnawing there, there is that some describe it as a God-shaped vacuum that is looking to be fulfilled by God, and yet we tend to try to put everything else in there, be it relationships, money, drugs, sports, fast living. And yeah, I guess even maybe some eavesdropping on this conversation today would say, yeah, a day on the golf course on a Sunday uh, playing 18 holes sounds a lot more attractive than sitting in a hard pew for two hours in church on a Sunday morning. And yet... There's something that the church experience, and specifically a relationship with God, will satisfy that a month of Sundays or a lifetime spent chasing that little white ball around on the lawn will never satisfy. That's right. And God's not opposed to us enjoying things. I mean, Paul said in First Timothy chapter 6, God has given us freely everything to enjoy. He just wants to be the center of what we do. He wants to be God to us. And uh, so often we push God out because we want to do life our way, not realizing that tomorrow's promised to no one. I mean, the next breath we take isn't promised to us. And so what really is important? Eternity. That's what's really important. And so how can I live my life, serve God, still enjoy myself, but realize he has a purpose for me? And I'm thankful, Craig, that at age 22, I, I was able to see that it saved me a lot of heartache. There are a lot of people that have a perspective, too, that God is waiting up in heaven with a large stick, Mm -hmm. just watching our every move, waiting for us to step out of line so he can, boom, bring that stick down on our head. Um, What was that perspective like for you as a young man growing up? Yeah, it was there because obviously I had knowledge of God and and, uh, people that weren't raised in church or in a religious background don't have that deep of a sense of it. But I did. I had that sense. But I just wanted to do my thing. And I would rationalize and justify it. Well, why is this wrong? Well, why can't I do that? So what's the big deal? And so you, you fight against the knowledge that you have. And it's like it says in Romans 1.18, you know, they suppress the truth of God. And so it's easy to suppress God to do your own thing. But you'll find in the long run, uh, sometimes God will even give you what you want. Uh, I think in the Psalms it says God gave them what they desired, but he sent them leanness of soul. There's just an emptiness in your soul. 
Okay, I'll let you do it your way. I'll let you go down your path. But it's empty. And so, uh, you know, thankfully at an early age, I saw that and I responded to it that Monday night. That was hard walking out of that house that night with my buddies. And they were like, what? It's Monday. Huh? The Raiders are on, man. And uh, But I had to do what was right for me. When you turned that corner, what did the journey look like for you early on? You, you've suddenly made this shift where you pronounced at the age of 16, I'm done with organized religion. Suddenly at the age of 22, God himself is tapping you on the shoulder. So now you're beginning to make a pretty massive paradigm shift. Was Huge. there a, a struggle there? And, and was there a sense early on that part of what God had for you would ultimately include full-time ministry? Mm-hmm. Both and. It was a both and. It was a huge struggle because I only knew unsaved friends. And so I'm, I'm coming into a small church, which was Faith Fellowship at the time under Gary Goodell, Ron Cannoli back in the early 80s. And um, so it was a small circle. But my big circle was all the guys and women I used to know, friends. And so here I am shifting out, and they're watching this shift, and they're going, dude, something's changed in you. And uh, so it opened up a huge door of evangelism, but the temptation was still there. And uh, I just made a commitment to the Lord and myself that I was just going to serve the Lord. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, you're able to do it. Uh, And then all my friends started wanting to know about what is this change. So all of a sudden, here I am preaching to all my unsaved friends, and many of them got saved after that. And so there was the dual thing of, oh, man. That's very. That's Egypt, right? It's, I can hear it. <laughs> and yet, wow, the Lord is touching their lives through what he's doing in mine. And it's a process too, isn't it? In, in the sense that some people falsely think that when they make a commitment to Christ, when they surrender their life to the Lord, while Scripture tells us that all things have changed then, we become a new creature in Christ Jesus, there is, though, that process of surrendering Paul talked about the need to die daily mm-hmm. to the flesh. So there is that process of sanctification that takes a bit more time, isn't there? That's still going on. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> That's 36 years ago, and it's still going on. It's like Paul said, you know, until Christ is formed in you, you know, take you from glory to glory. Um, but, you know, changes should be made immediately. There should be a distinct difference. Uh, what repentance, metanoia means to turn and go in a different direction, think differently. And God does that. And all of a sudden you're getting your mind transformed by the word and under good teaching and preaching and uh, different influences in your life. You know, you're now you're with a Christian community rather than just an unsaved community. And so it's difficult to live it out in an ungodly world that we live in, but, uh, but you can do it. Over time, does that, that taste, that desire for things of the old life begin to diminish? You know, the bigger things, yeah, but sin is right there, Craig. I mean, we all have a sin nature. Paul said, it's no longer I, but sin in me that makes me do these things and who will save me from this body of death. And it's only through the work of the Holy Spirit. And as you know, he said in Galatians 5, that if you walk in the spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh for the spirit lusts against the flesh. It wars against each other. Um, And so the more you walk in the spirit, the easier it is. Uh, The more you get away from those things, then the flesh wants to take over. 
Joining me today in studio is Pastor Gary Mortero, of course, is the senior pastor at Faith Fellowship Church located in San Leandro. More information, by the way, about the church online at faith-fellowship.us. That's faith-fellowship.us. Gary also hosts I Speak Life, the radio program, heard weekday mornings at 11 a.m. right here on KFAX. We'll tell you a bit more about that coming up later on in our conversation. Meanwhile, a brief timeout. Back with more right after this. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. 